He's just warming up. So welcome, John Fernandez. You know, we got to get one of these at our church. It's kind of cool. But at our church, they would lower it when I'd come up to preach. That's the problem. They would just, it would disappear. Phil, it's good to be here on the 40th anniversary, and uh, it's, a, it's a joy. I think the thing I rejoice in the most is not looking at the pictures and even the friendships. I know a lot of you from uh, the 70s. Pam and I were in the church from 71 to 81. I started pastoring in 81. But it's not just the memories and the, the friendships and the influence that Phil had on me. More than that, it's the fact that after four decades, like Paul told the Philippians, Philippians 1, 4, and 5, I thank God upon every remembrance of you for your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. What really excites me is that four decades later, the gospel's still being preached, the word's still being declared, God's still changing people. It's all about him. He gets the glory for this. I, um, I'd like you to turn to Philippians chapter 2, and I thought a good thing to us to look at would be this transforming view of Christ. Uh, if you've been at Valley 40 years or four days, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, you're going to experience the desire to know Christ and want to have Him transform your life. So in Philippians chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 3 to 8, and we're going to actually be all over the Bible, but that'll be our home, home port. I want to take a moment right now and just ask Jesus to help us as we look in His Word. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you. What a joy it is to sing to you. Thank you for giving us music and song. There's something eternal about it. We're going to be singing in heaven, harmonizing in heaven. Great choirs of millions of people in heaven. Lord, how glorious you are. And all we can do is just shout out and sing and praise you. We're asking that right now, Jesus, that you would take the word of God and that you would pierce every one of our hearts and cause us to know you better and to love you more, cause us to enter into the wonderful joy and peace and love that you promise us. I pray for those that may not even know you. They heard about you. They just don't really know you. That today would be the day that they would welcome you into their life as their Lord and Savior. That you would cause them to be born again this very morning. That everybody in this building that does not know you will leave here with the joy of knowing you. Thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus, your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Korea, North Korea, uh, according to the Open Doors USA ministry, Jerry Dystra, is the worst place on the planet to live if you're a Christian. If they find you're a Christian, they immediately arrest you, and you're either put into jail, into um, uh, concentration camps, or you're executed. They take you and three generations of your family and arrest you and do that too because they want to remove any, any possibility that your Christianity has polluted anybody. So all your relatives and everybody related to you are also arrested, never to be seen again. It's hostile. Christianity, there is no churches there, but believe it or not, there are believers there by the hundreds, even thousands, in the most hostile place on the earth. But there's a place that you can live and that you may be living. There's a country, there's actually two countries, that if you live in them, there is no possibility that you'll ever, ever see the work of God in those countries. They're so dark, 
they're so hostile to Christianity that, in fact, there's never been ever a movement of God nor anybody changed by God in those countries. I'll tell you what they are in a moment. Jesus promises to change us. He says, I've come in to give you life and to give it abundantly. He says, I've come, if you're thirsty, to give you water that's living. Jesus said in John 14, 27, my peace I leave you, not like the world. I'll give you my peace, supernatural, that passes human understanding. He said in John 15, 10 and 11, my joy I'll give you, my love I'll give you. Listen, if you're a Christian, you long for that and you're bothered when you don't have it. Jesus has not promised us this supernatural kind of life in the midst of a world that will not produce anything like it. So we want to, how can we have this? Most Christians struggle with, with the reality that they don't have that. Even good Bible churches struggle at times with this. The book of Philippians, Paul founded the Philippian church. He wrote this letter to the Philippians. In, their church is located in Greece. They were a church that not only was founded by Paul and had had Paul's preaching in it, but they had participated in the gospel. They had given sacrificially. They had helped Paul in his needs. They had fellowship together. This was a model church, and even this church was struggling. Chapter 2, verse 14, there was murmuring and complaining. Chapter 4, verse 2, Euodius and Sidetyche, two women in the church, were having at it. Is it possible for there to be disharmony among Christians? <laughs> and you all groaned, Amen. I just talked to your wife. She can tell me that's possible. The reality is that most Christians live on the fringes of what Jesus promised. And they never experience what they really want to experience. It's because they're living in the wrong country. They're living in a country that will never, ever allow them to produce that. They're living, first of all, in the land of me. Look on Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Paul says this, this church that was exemplary yet losing its luster. He says, do nothing from selfishness. What does that imply they were doing? There was selfishness going on or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. What does that imply was happening? They weren't regarding each other as more important. Verse 4, do not merely look out for your own personal interests. What does that tell you the focus of many of these Christians were? Me, themselves. You see, in the land of me, there is no peace. There is no harmony. See, in chapter 2, verse 1, if there is any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship, if there's any affection or compassion, make my joy complete, being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. That's all pie-in-the-sky Christian lingo. You'll never taste any of that. That's just all Christian hype. Some of you are thinking that. I've heard that for years. Many people walk away and never to come into a church again because they hear all this stuff and they never experience it. And all of that is not possible for you, Paul is saying, because you're in the land of me. This land of me is a land preoccupied with self. The citizens of this land continually have themselves on their mind. Did you know that you think about yourself all the time? You're on your mind constantly, aren't you? Even right now, aren't you thinking about yourself? Or if you're not thinking about yourself, you're thinking about other people and what they're thinking about you. You're always on your mind. And this land of me, of being preoccupied with self, is a land 
filled with disharmony, disunity, frustration, and discontent. Everything he lists there is, is fueled by this land. It's a land in which it's lethal, it's deadly to any kind of fellowship and joy. Because in this land, everybody's radar is only set and tuned to detect their own needs. They don't look out for the interests of others. It's not on their radar. Just not on their radar screen. And so in this land, what's on your radar screen is your needs, your desires. And it leads to a life of discontent, anger. James chapter 4, verse 1 and 2 says, Where does fightings and quarrelings come from? Does it not come from your wife? doesn't say that says, does it not come from within you? You desire to have and can't have, so you fight and quarrel. The me world is a me that is preoccupied with my desires, my wants, and when they're not being fulfilled, they're not being met, whether they be good or not. They might be good desires. This me world becomes filled with people that are discontented and frustrated, con conf conflict. Usually this land is littered with people that have left Then they do this. They're refugees. They run from the land of me. They realize there's nothing there. And they run to an equally barren land where there's never been fruit, nor will there ever be. They run to the land of you. Look what he says in chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Grumbling against who? Other people. Disputing against others. So these same people are not only tempted to be in the land of me, but they're tempted to leave that land and look to you. And guess what happens in the land of you? In the land of you, you find out your needs aren't ultimately met there either because they eventually don't meet your needs and your desires. They eventually leave you disillusioned. There's not a person on the earth that can meet your needs the way Christ alone can. And in the land of you, it's littered with all kinds of broken relationships because they tried this you and they left it and they tried this you and they left it and they tried another you and it didn't work. So it's littered with marriages that are ended. It's littered with, with, with relationships that are severed. And so in this chapter, Christ points us to another land, the only land, that it's possible to have harmony and joy and love and peace and all that the Lord promises, and that's the land of Him. And notice he talks about this land of Him in chapter 2, verse 5. In, in contrast, instead of looking out for your own interest in the land of you, in verse 4, have this attitude in yourself which was also in Christ Jesus. Although He existed in the form of God, He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself, not concerned about Him. Self, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. In this land of him, he is set, promising something amazing. It's implied here. If you have the attitude in you, which was in Christ Jesus, then the whole point of that is that it will... It will stop in the tracks. It will counteract. It will be the antidote to all the problems he had mentioned before and after. 
instead of being selfish, verse 3, conceited, prideful, instead of being focused on your own interests, instead of grumbling, grumbling and complaining in verse 14, instead of that, something miraculous is going to happen to you if you come into his world. And that's just what Jesus promised all throughout the Bible. Come to me, he says in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. I'll give you rest for your souls. Come to me, all you that are thirsty. I'll give you rivers of living water in John 7, 38. Come to me, I'm the bread of life, John 6, 35. Come to me, I'm the light of the world. Jesus is everything you need. You've got to come into his world. So this land is a wonderful land. It's a wonderful place. It promises you what you cannot get on the earth. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you'll have tribulation. But you take courage, I've overcome the world. I give you peace, not as the world gives peace do I give you. He'll give you the kind of peace that'll allow you to die with a smile on your face. C.S. Lewis's wife, he married her when he was a bachelor for 70 years. He married her at the end of his life, knowing she had cancer. As his wife laid there dying of cancer, he looked at her and he said to her, Honey, are you at peace? She looked at him. It says that she, he said, she then smiled, but not at me. The Lord himself gives you a peace and joy that you cannot comprehend. Jesus is promising you that. Do you long for that? You got to get out of your world. Got to get out of there. You know, when I, uh, I had a neck injury, a serious neck injury, several years ago, Phil came and visited me in the in the providence of God, he comes into the, into the emergency room. I had uh, went headfirst into water, not knowing it was shallow water, and at 18 inches of water went headfirst and paralyzed instantly on my left side. God healed it. I got my feeling back, but I had months of horrendous pain and nausea. I was in the emergency room. And as we, we went, uh, this, if you've had neck injuries, you know the nausea, the pain, it's just unrelenting. But we, I said, I've got to get out of here. So we took a trip, believe it or not. It was my vacation. I said, honey, we just got to get out of here. We're going crazy in the house. So somebody told us to go to the Canadian Rockies. So we used flight miles, flew up into the, wherever that was, Calgary, rented a car and drove up into the Canadian Rockies in the Columbus Parkway, right at the, at the middle of the highest point in the continent, the Rockies to the right, Rocky Mountains coming off the highways to the left with fingers of glaciers coming down the mountains into blue, bluish, unearthly, beautiful lakes and trees it was a scene like you've never seen in your entire life it was so unearthly so beautiful it was like you're driving into a postcard and as we drove up that highway i remained in pain and in nausea but i didn't notice it because the beauty of what i was looking at was a blessed diversion a blessed distraction paul told, paul was told by jesus jesus please take away the pain remember what jesus told paul in second corinthians 12 Paul, my grace is sufficient. I'm going to leave you in your nausea. I'm going to leave you in your pain. But I'm going to provide for you something you can't imagine, a blessed distraction. He says, I'll provide the grace that you need. What is it, Lord? Me. So Jesus said, I'm all you need. I'm all you need. Counseling that doesn't point people to Christ is like pointing to people to the desert. All you're doing is having them talk about me and others. Point them to Christ. Talking about me is good. It helps you to realize how pointless it is. Sure, I want to talk about your past. I've done marriage counseling and counseling for 30 years. 
Yeah, it's helpful to bring up the past. But you got to go forward out of the land of me sometime and go to him or you'll never taste what he's promised you. Get out of the past. Get out of the world, your world. Now, how do you get into the land of me? I mean, how do you get into the land of him? He commands you. In verse 4, in verse 5, it's a command. It's a present tense command. It can be translated this way. Start having this attitude, this careful reflection of Christ, and start having it now instead of your attitude of me and others. How do you get to Christ? How do you get through to him? How do you get into his world? You leave your world. Lord, I'm so sorry. All I've been thinking about is me, myself, and I. All I've been thinking about is how others haven't met my needs. All I've been thinking about is the land of you and how this illusion, everyone has made me. And Jesus said, would you stop it? I told you that you're in this world, and while you're in this world, you'll have tribulation. I told you I'm the source of your joy and peace. Are you just discovering it now? In fact, you'll only be able to love your husband and wife when you get out of that world and start rejoicing to me, and the residual effect will be the love and peace that you come from me will then flow to these people that you were formerly disillusioned with, so much so that you can love even people that you used to hate. Amen. It's Jesus. This is amazing. He's like no one else. And he says in this passage, dealing with relational problems, he says, you need to know about me. A lot of counseling doesn't bring in theology, and they never help people. The person and work of Christ, his death on the cross and his glorious person are at ground zero of changing relationships because they, they get you out of your world and out of the other's world into this world in which you can taste him, and he can change you. How, he says, get out. Say, Lord, I'm sorry. Then what do you do? Think biblically. Start contemplating and regarding what the Lord says about himself. In other words, there's no program here. There's no process. It's just a person. He says, you've got a problem with being selfish. You've got a problem with murmuring and complaining. You've got problems relationally. Come, Christ simply says, the answer is, would you start looking at me and absorbing in my glory and my greatness and all that I've done for you, and I guarantee I'll make sure that that filters out into your heart and life. So it's a decision that we have to make. It's up to you to do that. Contemplate, regard Christ. What does Jesus want you to know about him that will transform you? Well, in this passage, he reveals some things about himself that will, that will be part of the attitude and perspective that you hold on to that will therefore translate into this transformed life. First thing he wants you to know about himself is that he, before he came to this earth, was God. He wants you to know that that baby who grew up to be a man who lived for 33 years was way more than a man. He was the Lord God, Jehovah, the creator of the heavens and the earth. It says in chapter one, uh, 2, verse 6, now describing this truth that will cause you to have the right attitude, he says, who although, Jesus, he existed in the form of God. The word existed means this, existed. It means he lived. That was his being. Jesus continually existed prior to his birth. He pre-existed his birth as God. There's no one like that. You're looking at a guy walking around, maybe 880 pounds, walking around the Sea of Galilee, and you're thinking he's just a man. And he says, no, I want, you to bring, you, I want to bring you into my world. 
let me unveil and pull your eye, the veil off your eyes and let you see a little bit about what I was doing before I came to the earth. I existed continually as God. What does that mean? Micah 5.3, before he, he came out of Bethlehem, but his goings forth were from eternity. He wants you to know that he's eternal. He had no beginning. He's God. He created the universe out of nothing. John 1, verses 1 to 3, in the beginning, the beginning of all things was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. In the beginning, at the time when anything exists that exists today, at that time, He continually existed, and through Him and by Him, all things that exist were brought into creation. You're looking at a 180-pound man that brought everything into existence. He not only did that, Hebrews 1.3 says, you need to know this about him prior to coming to the earth. He upheld the universe. He kept it going. Hebrews 1.3 says that he held all things together by the word of his power. Was he, was he a, a gopher back then? Was he just some indifferent person? No, he not only created all things, he ruled over all things as the almighty God. Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons united in one. The eternal Son of God, Jehovah God himself, back in the Old Testament, ruled. He ruled. He's a ruler. He's a king. He didn't become a king when he came to earth. You want to read what he was like? Look back in Isaiah 40 sometime. It says he ruled over all the nations. They're like a drop in the bucket, it says. They're less than nothing to him. He merely blows on them and they wither and go away. He's the one who sent the flood on the earth and judged them. He's the one who had, it says in John 17, 5 and 24, Jesus said, you need to know this about me, men. Talking to his disciples. He's praying and he says, Father, would you show them the glory which we had together before the world even existed? And in those passages, he also says, Lord, that I may love them with the love which you and I had together before the foundation of the world. The one who came into that womb and into the Mary's stomach and was born into this world had already existed for eternity and was enjoying perfect harmony and fellowship with the Heavenly Father and with the Spirit. He didn't need us. He wasn't lonely. He didn't come here out of some kind of lonely bent. Jesus needs you to know that. This is information you'd never get. You'd never guess. It wasn't videotaped. He's revealing it to you. He comes to him aside and he says, let me tell you this about me. He's worshipped long before he came to this earth. He was adored and worshipped. In Isaiah chapter 6, I saw seraphim and cherubim falling down before the throne and worshipping him. He's glorious in his beauty. Ezekiel 1 says, I saw him high and lifted up on his throne, and, an, and a rainbow, an emerald rainbow surrounded him. Brilliant light, 1 Timothy 6, 19. He dwelled in light, unapproachable. You could not be a part of it in a human body. Glorious in appearance, beautiful being magnified and adored and served gladly by his creatures from ages to past. But Jesus doesn't want you to just know that. And you remember now, this is information about Jesus that he wants you to make a part of your thinking so that it will transform your life. He not only wants you to know that he was God before he came to the earth, he wants you to know he became real man. He became fully human. It says in verse 6, Although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. Some would say Jesus emptied himself of being God. But that's not what the passage is saying. 
It's saying the context of this passage is not his deity. It's the form and expression, the word form of God. He existed in the form of God. That is outwardly displaying his deity, outwardly receiving all the prerogatives and rights and privileges and worship due him as God. But he didn't hold on to that. The thing to be grasped means treasured. He didn't treasure the glory that he was receiving nor the prerogatives that he was displaying. He didn't treasure that. But he let it go and came to earth and took the form of a servant. So now he remains God, but you'd think he's just a man. Because he's veiled it all. There was a, a, a show um, my wife pointed out to me several months ago called a reality show, uh, The Undercover Boss. And The Undercover Boss, the CEO of various national corporations... Uh, voluntarily uh, leaves his office and for one week puts on the clothes of a common worker and is cleaning bathrooms and serving fast food and, and digging ditches and doing the muck and the work and he's dressed in overalls and he's dirty and he's unshaven and during that entire week that he does that, the people that he's around don't know it. They think he's just a worker. Then a week later, he then reveals himself to be, in fact, the CEO of the company. But during that entire time he was there, he never stopped being CEO. He never stopped his rank. He never stopped being who he was. Jesus is the undercover God. Jesus, I haven't stopped anything. I have all the attributes. That's why Jesus could say, be still on the boat in Matthew chapter 8, and the wind and sea obey him. And they say, who is this that the winds and sea obey him? And he just says, I'm tired. i got to lay down. What? You're tired, but you control the, the nature? In John 18, when they go to arrest him, they come up to arrest him, and Jesus says, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am, which is the Greek phrase, ego I me, which is the phrase that the Jews had translated to refer to the name of God. When Moses was asked in Exodus 3, Lord, what is your name? He said, I am. So that phrase, when Jesus says, who are you seeking? He says, I am. 600 soldiers, a legion of Roman soldiers, trained killers. You go, why they send 600 guys to, to arrest one, one, -armed guy, one unarmed man? Because they'd seen him and heard him do all the miraculous, raise the dead, calm the sea. As if, well, then 600 guys are going to stop this guy? He controls the, Think of their illogic. So, okay, so he can control nature, but 600 guys are going to control him? But in their thinking, they were, we're going to overpower him. So they come at night to arrest him in the garden with 600 with clubs and soldiers and clubs and lanterns. And they come to arrest him. They come up, and it says, Jesus says, I am. In John 18, 4, it says, they fell to their knees motionless. Then they get up at his permission and arrest him and manhandle him. Jesus says, nobody takes my life in John 10, 17, and 18. I lay it down on my own free will and I'll take it up. You're talking about the undercover God here. This is the God who created the universe. He just wanted to remind them, guys, you're not manhandling me. I'm letting you do this. The one that you pray to is the creator of the universe. You're not talking about some second string guy. Jesus is God. He hasn't lost anything. When he was on earth, he didn't kind of leave some of his attributes behind because they couldn't fit into his body. 
Colossians 2.9 says, In him, in Christ, all the fullness of the divine nature dwelt in bodily form. And that human body was omniscience, omnipotence, all power, all wisdom, all righteousness, all in that body. I had a Mormon, I have a Mormon bishop that the Lord's allowed me to develop a relationship in Napa. And I, I was in a discussion with him, and he was saying, we believe Jesus is God. We believe that he's the Lord, the God. I know, I read your, I re in fact, I read the Book of Mormon and researched it just so I can be able to talk intelligently with this guy. And I can, you can quote the verses. We believe Jesus is the Lord, the, Lord, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's the Lord God. He's creator of all things. He's our Lord. He's our God. We love him. I said, fine. Can you tell me, is Jesus God? Oh, of course he's God. No, I meant with a big G, not a little G. Is he God? Yes, he's God. I said, did he have a beginning? Was he created? Did he have a starting point? He says, yes. I said, then he wasn't God. Because Isaiah chapter 46, 47, and 48, God defines himself by his eternality. I am from eternity. I am he. There are no others, says the Lord. I am the first and the last. There are no others beside me. I have no starting point. From everlasting to everlasting, I'm God. You can call him God all you want, but he's not God. But Jesus, you're looking at someone who had no starting point, fully God in a human body, fully man. He wasn't faking it when he acted like he was in the garden, when he was sweating drops of blood, when he was writhing in agony on the cross. He wasn't faking it. He was, I'm going to make him think I'm really human. He really was human. He came to earth, Luke 1.35, it says, it says here, first of all, in Philippians, it says, he became, though he was God, did not think, verse 6, it's something to be grasped onto. That is the outward expression of his deity. Verse 7, he emptied himself of what? That is the outward form, expression of deity, taking the form of a bondservant being made in the likeness of men, plural. In other words, he looked completely human. He had, he was, he had a human nature just like anybody in this room. Fingers, toes, human mind, human emotions. He didn't know all things. He had to learn things. His mind was not omniscient on a human level. He had to learn how to walk. He had to learn how to talk. He grew in wisdom and stature. He wasn't born omniscient as a human. And he says, and found an appearance as a man. Not only was he completely human, he had a particular human personality. He wasn't a generic robot of a human walking around with, without a personality. He was a unique personality, a real human, fingers, toes, human mind, human intellect, human will, all of that. He was totally human, fully human. He wasn't faking when he said in John 11, verse 4, in John 11, verse 4, he's God. And he says, I know Lazarus has sickness, and I know that sickness is going to lead to death for the glory of God. He's manifesting his omniscience. He walks two days' journey, gets to where Lazarus is. Lazarus has been dead now. And he goes up to him and says, where have you laid him? You know all things, yet you're having to ask us where you laid him? This person is amazing. He is possessing limited human knowledge simultaneously with divine knowledge. Here's what cults do. Here's what people do. They interpret the Bible based upon their human ability to con conceive and rationalize it and reason through it. And they say, that's impossible. You can't have omnipotence in a 180-pound body. And you cannot have omniscience in a human brain. He says he doesn't know all things, therefore he's not omniscient. 
They define what they believe based upon their human reasonings. We, and you hopefully, will come and say, no, we define what we believe based upon what's the Bible say. If it says he was fully human and had limited knowledge, so be it. If it says that he was simultaneously had infinite, perfect knowledge, so be it. That's a contradiction. No, it isn't. It's a, a wondrous mystery that in one person he could possess and experience two realms simultaneously. Let him be. Let Jesus be God. Let him be in all of his mystery. Let him be. This is what the cults do. Christianity today is diminished Christ. They don't want that kind of Christ because there's many today that would say, if you have that kind of Christ, it, it turns people off. They can't fathom it. How could he be omniscient and omnipotent at the same time? I choose, I choose that he's man with a sprinkled little bit of de deity in him, but he's man because the two can't be. And they diminish what the Bible and what Jesus says about his glory. But Jesus isn't going to buy any of it. The one who was God from all eternity became real man without losing any of his deity. There's a woman who wrote, I think, a very compelling poem. He says, she says, he stretched skin over spirit like a rubber glove, aligning trinity with bone, twining through veins until deity square-knotted with flesh. There's nothing like Jesus. There's nothing like him. He can empathize with your weaknesses and yet controls the universe. He knows what it's like to be hungry and betrayed, yet he rules sovereignly over all things. There's none like him. He's your friend, yet he's the infinite God of the universe who can help you. There's nothing like Jesus. You take away his humanity, he's not the same Jesus. He's really human. You diminish his deity, he's no longer the real Jesus. Gregory, one of the church fathers, that means one of the leaders of the church after the apostles died, said this for 1,500 years ago, 1,700 years ago. Jesus was tempted as man, but he conquered as God. He hungered, yet he fed thousands. He was wearied. But he's the rest of those who are weary. He was heavy with sleep, but he walked lightly on the water. He's the king of those who demanded it. He prays, but he hears prayers. He weeps, but he causes tears to cease. He says, where have you laid Lazarus? And then raises him from the dead. He is sold and very cheap for only 30 pieces of silver, but he redeems the world with his blood. As a sheep, he's led to the slaughter, but he's the shepherd of Israel, and now the whole world. He was bruised and wounded, but he heals every disease and every infirmity. There's no one like him. No one like Jesus. Get into his world. Little Christ, little transformation. Go to all the counseling you want. You're not going to be transformed. Ultimately, they're going to have to point you to someone out of your world. That's Christ. There's something about him that changes everything. The church has lost sight of that. The church in America. Thank God for Phil's preaching. Thank God for Valley. But this isn't the norm. May God raise up hundreds of churches that will once again proclaim the glory of Christ and not bow to the rationalizations of men and try to reconfine him and redefine him. I have a friend, wow, it's 12.30, Phil. This is unbelievable, okay? 
Um, but I got to go home with my wife. <laughs> Jesus is great. He's great. C.S. Lewis, great Cambridge scholar, chairman of the Department of Literature in Cambridge, came to Christ through Tolkien's testimony, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the most brilliant Christians who probably has ever lived in modern history. In his book, The Book of Miracles, he says this about Christ. You see, because it says in this passage in Philippians that something else is glory about Jesus is not only that he was God forever, not only that he's fully man and human at the same time, but that this same Christ humbled himself to death, even death on the cross for you. That one not only humbled himself to become human forever, taking upon himself a human body, but humbled himself down, down, down to where he's hanging on a cross. The cross in Roman society, according to Cicero, the uh, uh, Roman uh, statesman, was a brutal, brutal form of death. It was so brutal that they wouldn't allow it to be mentioned in public circles of the higher Roman society. The flogging that he bore in his body was so great that the bones and pieces of metal that they would beat him with, front and back, face, all the way through his whole body, were so great that it says that it was the equivalent of being filleted alive, being skinned alive. It was so bad that men who had gone through that type of flogging would often bite their tongue off in pain. It was so bad that predicting it 700 years early, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 52 says that he was marred, he was disfigured beyond human recognition. C.S. Lewis says this, this great God who descends to reascend, he comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, but he goes down to bring up again and to bring up the whole ruined world with him. One is the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver first reducing himself to nakedness, then flying through midair, gone with the splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water into black and cold water, down, down through increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay. Then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting till suddenly he breaks the surface again, holding in his hands the dripping, precious thing he went to recover. You. He down goes, comes back up for you. Lewis says, there certainly has no seed ever fallen from so fair a tree into so dark and cold a soil as would furnish more than a faint analogy to this huge descent and reascension in which God dredged the oozy bottom of creation. He loves your soul. There's no one like Jesus. Fully God, yet takes humanity 
forever now has hands and feet in a human nature, plunges into the darkest recesses of, of, the, of the world, hanging on a cross, humiliated for thousands who pass by the Via Della Rosa to see him exposed and hanging like a piece of meat disfigured on the cross, impaled the God of heaven for you so that he could bring up after he was raised from the dead all those who put faith in him, he'd hold you up and say, I got him, Father. I got him. I saved him, Father. Jesus said, for the joy that was before him, he endured his suffering. Father, I'll go down for him. And he came up and brought him out of the darkness into the glorious light. Colossians 1 says, you've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom you have an inheritance. You have an inheritance that will never perish. Undefiled does not fade away from you. Listen, if you're not a Christian, you need to understand this Jesus. This one who did this for you is the one who will judge you. He's calling you. He's not suggesting. He's calling you to repentance today. He's calling you to make up your mind about him. Get out of your world. Your world's not accurate. Proverbs chapter 28, 26 says, your world is very deceive, deceiving and delusional. 90% of the time, you live in a delusional world. Did you know that? You think a lot highly and more highly of yourself than you really are. If you saw how ungodly you were as in God's eyes, you'd run to Jesus. Proverbs 28, 26 says, the fool says in his heart, trust in his own heart. It's a fool who trusts in his own heart, but he who trusts in the Lord will be safe. The Lord hasn't lied to you. Jesus said, I go to believe in God, believe in me. Why? Because I'm God, and I go to prepare a place for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't have told you. I'm not embellishing. I'm not making up things. I'm telling you reality. There is a God in heaven. He's come to earth. He's come down to die and pay for your sins. He's risen again. Will you come to him today? Will you come to him? If not, you'll die and stand before him as surely as you're sitting here now. And the one that dove into the depths of the human suffering to pay for your sins and rose again will look at you and say, I never knew you. Matthew 7, 23, you're on your own. And you'll stand before a holy God with no defense, with no righteousness, He's warning you while you're in the land of the living. Flee. Get out of the me world. Get out of the you world and flee to him. Let's stand and pray together. Lord, we thank you. Thank you, Lord, that you would so love us. That you would launch yourself out of heaven into the human race. Come all the way inside of a virgin Jewish girl named Mary. Attach your divine, eternal being to a human nature. Allow yourself to be born into the world. lived a perfect, sinless life, died a horrendous death. Lord, thank you. I ask you for those that don't know you today, that they'd run to you today, 
by faith they would acknowledge, yes, Lord, I know I've sinned against you. I've broken your laws. I've lied. I've stole. I've committed immorality. I've deceived. And they'd run to you, Jesus, for forgiveness, knowing that you paid for all of their sins, everything. You, you paid for it all. They would run to you and trust you, Jesus, alone to save them. And I pray for Christians here that have been in their own world for too long. It's such a lonely world. It's such an unhappy world, the me world. Would you cause them to run to you, Jesus, and thank you for forgiving them and renew in them a steadfast spirit and let them once again praise and rejoice and put their attention on you. Renew and restore and help your people. Help us, Lord to live for your glory. In Jesus, your name we pray these things. Amen.